Global Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, I'm excited to talk to Sasha Eisenberg, the author of the new book, The Engagement, America's Quarter Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. Already mentioned as a must-read by the New York Times, getting excellent reviews, Sasha is a journalist with stints at the Boston Globe, Philadelphia Inquirer, New York Times, among others, and his previous book, Victory Lab, is an excellent book about the evolution of advanced data and targeting techniques in political campaigns, which I'd also highly recommend. I appreciate Sasha coming on to talk about his new book, The Engagement. Sasha Eisenberg, I've had several authors on this podcast, but you're the first one who's dedicated a book to one of my competitors. But before uh, we get to your new book, I do want to put in a plug for your previous book, Victory Lab. Uh, In my mind, one of the best and most accessible looks at the rise of the new, uh, not so new anymore, but the the, the quantitative tools popularized by the Obama campaign in 8 and 12 have continued to evolve since then. I recommend that book to anyone with a burgeoning interest in politics. I think it captures the way political messaging and targeting is moving and will continue to move in the future. So folks should check out Victory Lab. Uh, But let's move on to your new book, The Engagement. The book is everywhere, mentioned by the New York Times, rave reviews, you're omnipresent on the media circuit. People are listening to this podcast. It's probably on their radar. But Sasha, can you give a table setter for the premise of the book and what got you interested in the topic? Yeah, the idea behind the book is this is probably the defining sort of domestic social change of of my lifetime in the United States. The way same-sex marriage emerged as an issue in the 1990s, became the sort of center of the culture wars, I think you'd say, in the early 2000s. And then with the Supreme Court decision in 2015, ended up, you know, becoming settled law across the country and, and, and now is in many respects, sort of no longer in our politics as an active issue. And my goal is to write the whole story of that arc, a sort of single volume political legal history of, you know, where marriage came from all the way through. And so, you know, the the animating insight actually came while I was working on that book, The Victory Lab. I was reporting it in um, throughout 2011 and ended up in a lot of conversations with pollsters at the time where people would say to me uh, some version of that they'd never seen public opinion on a single issue move as quickly as they had seen it move on marriage. At the time, nobody had a really good explanation of that for me. And we were already starting to talk about this as the kind of defining civil rights movement of the era. And I was sort of startled that nobody had set out to tell the the story of how this all happened. For someone just getting hip to politics today, uh, for context, is there an issue today that you think is a reasonable analog to where the issue of gay marriage was 30 years ago in terms of something that just seems like that progress would be unthinkable, a non-starter of moving the needle. Is there an analog, a parallel? It's a great question, Zach. I mean, where the book starts in 1990, gay marriage is like akin to like, should cannibalism be legal in that nobody is talking about it. It is something I guess you could conceivably imagine, but in 1990, there's not a single gay rights group in the United States that has defined marriage as an objective. There are plenty of, you know, religious conservative activists who are fighting to deny gay people rights and liberties and freedoms on all sorts of fronts, but they're not trying to stop gays and lesbians from marrying because none of them are trying to. Barely a politician in the United States who's ever been asked his or her opinion on gay marriage. And so I think at that point, yeah, it's like, it's like, should we go to war with Bolivia? It's just not like a political issue, right? And your book talks about, uh, I believe points out that the movement toward civil unions was almost too successful uh, and created a hurdle toward moving people that next step toward pro-marriage equality stance. I mean, do you agree with that characterization? Can you speak to that? 
Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I think the way to think about this is in the 1990s, marriage was, you know, it emerges with this 93 court decision in Hawaii. It becomes a national issue around 96 when you get the Defense of Marriage Act. And at this point, it's a two-sided issue. Do you think gays and lesbians should be able to marry or not? Polling in in the mid-90s had 27% of Americans supported uh, the right of same-sex couples to marry. We get this third side of an issue in 2000 in Vermont. It's forced upon the legislature basically by this Vermont Supreme Court, which in 1999, there's a lawsuit. The court rules in favor of the plaintiffs and says that Vermont can't discriminate in the awarding of equal benefits against same-sex couples. But it says that remedy for that does not have to be allowing same-sex couples to marry. The court basically gives the legislature instructions. You guys can go figure out any scheme that you want that gives the equal benefits to same-sex couples. And it can be marriage or it can be something else. They call it this idea of civil unions. And the idea is, right, that you give all the legal protections and benefits of marriage, but you do not use this word that is incredibly sensitive for religious, historical, traditional reasons. And what happens over gradually over the course of, you know, in Vermont, like nobody's really that happy about this, except for even some of the legislatures who are sort of happy to take the compromise position still feel it was forced upon them by the courts. But a lot of the gay rights activists think of this as like a separate but equal solution. And folks who are obviously against recognizing gay families see this for what it is, which is the most expansive set of benefits that that gay families are getting anywhere in the hemisphere. It takes some time, but that quickly becomes the position that sort of safe, ambitious, certainly nationally minded Democratic politicians adopt. That is through the 2000s where John Kerry and John Edwards and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Joe Biden and basically anybody else you name ends up some version of a message and a position that is marriage is between a man and a woman, but I think that same-sex couples should be entitled to all the material benefits. I think it seems at the time as though that is going to be a sort of way station in the policy development process and that a lot of states, a handful of states develop some version of the civil unions domestic partnership framework, but that this kind of incremental policy is going to be a place where a lot of states go before they can bring themselves to go to marriage. What happens over the course of that decade is that basically I think people become persuaded by the underlying message. And so I talk about how around 2010, a group called Freedom to Marry embarked on a whole lot of research research on messaging, on tactics, on whatever. And they profiled the electorate. I think it was Third Way that did this study. And, but they basically segmented the electorate into, into three groups. And so we're around 2010 now. Uh, just over 40% of the electorate is pro-same-sex marriage. You know, Roughly a third of the electorate is basically just anti-gay and opposes most gay rights measures. And then the other third or so is what they call the movable middle on this issue. And it's overwhelmingly female overwhelmingly people who say that they know somebody who's gay or lesbian and these people support civil unions. And they have basically become persuaded that gays and lesbians are entitled to all these rights and benefits. And also that you don't even have to mess with the more difficult question of redefining marriage to give it to them. And I think you're absolutely right. Like civil unions were to some degree a real inadvertent accomplishment of the gay rights movement. Even if very few people were actually aiming for them at the time, but it then created this strategic problem. And a lot of the messaging in the 2012, there are four ballot uh, ballot measures that are up for a vote in November of 2012. The persuasion efforts in those campaigns are not focused on getting people who are against recognizing gay families to support gay marriage. It's getting people who believe in civil unions to understand that they're insufficient and that you actually have to show people why the word marriage means something to, to gays and lesbians. That was not a sort of dynamic that could have been imagined in, in 2000. 
but you mentioned a, a pollster named Lisa Grove uh, in yeah. in your book as a, a colleague of mine, a friend yeah. of mine uh, who was very integral in the elements that you just mentioned in that inflection point post California Prop Eight to, to 2012 victories. But you know, can you just sort of touch on you know on, on Lisa Grove and her some of the work she did in that period? Let me take you back to this period. So 2008, California becomes the second state uh, to legalize same-sex marriage. The California Supreme Court rules in favor of plaintiffs in a case in the early summer of 2008, orders that same-sex couples be allowed to marry. They start doing that. And almost immediately, opponents work to qualify a measure for the ballot that will put an end to that and ban same-sex marriage in the in the Constitution. Ultimately, Proposition 8, as it's known, passes by about four points. And this is, you know, it's the 30th state or so to pass a constitutional amendment. But this one is sort of different, I think, from the perspective of the gay rights movement. In almost every other state that had voted on this, it was preordained that this would fail. There were always very good explanations or justifications or excuses for why they couldn't defeat a constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriage. It's not a favorable, you know, it's a Republican state. Look at the composition of the electorate. It was like low a turnout. high turnout election in a bad state or a low turnout election in a good state. It was in a state where there wasn't a, a well-established LGBT sort of organization. There was a huge financial imbalance in almost all of these with anti-gay marriage side spending more. And these were all pretty good explanations for why there was no way you were going to win. California, none of those things applied. The entire political leadership of the state, not just Democrats or Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was the governor at the time, opposed Prop 8. The pro-gay marriage side of this raised $45 million. It was one of the most expensive campaigns of any kind in American history. There was a historically well-trained, sophisticated political gay and lesbian apparatus in the state. And this is the same ballot Obama's beating McCain by 20 whatever points. Exactly. And they're losing a gay marriage vote. And what it does is it forces the folks who've been running these gay marriage campaigns to say, like, we're out of excuses. Clearly, we are running bad campaign. And they've been leading in polling up until the end. And so there's this real reckoning with we're doing something wrong. Uh, this group called Freedom to Marry, which which had sort of began to establish itself as the hub for campaign activity just on the marriage question, as opposed to like the human rights campaign or the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, which dealt with the whole range of issues, start uh, setting off on a big research agenda. And one of the things they do is they create this marriage research consortium. They bring in a couple of pollsters who've done work on all this issue, all of these issues. They set some standards for to try to standardize a lot of survey methodology things. They get people to agree to share all their research across and try to create a, a, a clearinghouse of this. And then set off on, on sort of big research projects. One kind of define who's actually persuadable on these questions, who are our, who, who are our targets, you know, and, and Lisa's at the center of all this. The thing that was always happening at the end of these campaigns and was particularly pronounced in the California instance, that there seemed to be a late break towards sort of anti-gay marriage side. And the messaging in turn during those times often to stuff about children. Either they're going to teach in schools that being gay and lesbian is okay, or your kids are going to come home from school and you're going to have to explain to them, or maybe they're trying to turn your kids gay or like whatever it is. None of the existing pro-gay marriage messaging had had been prepared to deal with. And, had, and, you know, and, and people can Google it, but you mentioned that the two princes ad. Uh, in yeah. California, people should just Google that to get a sense of what, you know, yeah. what maybe was causing some of that late break against the the, the marriage equality. Side. And this really emotionally resonant, me- resonant messaging about kids that led people, you know, parents particularly who were risk averse, presumably, even if they kind of agreed on the higher level public values questions about equality and uh, liberty and fairness to to recede. And so there was a lot of work that Lisa Grove, Amy Simon were the two most prominent pollsters that were doing this um, across a variety of states, but basically not in a state specific way 
was to understand like what is it about that children's children related messaging that is so potent and what can we do to inoculate people over the course of a campaign so that when invariably at the end of it the closing message from the opposition is something along the lines of Prince's ad in California we've laid the groundwork that that people are not going to be turned backwards and and we you start to see in these four ballot measures in, in 2012 that passed that there's a, a wholesale reformation of how gay marriage campaigns go at messaging. Play a little bit of a devil's advocate. I mean, there's four years between 2008 and 2012. Some people involved in the California measure say if the 2008 race would have been in 2010 or 2012 because of how quickly population is shifting, that maybe we would have, we would have won this. How do you attribute the success of 2012 as opposed to some of the tactical changes versus just four years of this slow and steady incline? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm like always wary as a political reporter of, of falling victim to the idea that certainly there's any one explanation to victory. And, and certainly I'm read enough and written enough about the you know measurable challenges of persuasion to think that you change some language in, in ads and scripts and all of a sudden you flip 10 points in the state. Public support for same-sex marriage is moving four or five points a year nationally. And some of that was opinion change. Some of that was clearly generational turnover. You know, one of the things that's been notable in the polling across this issue, across gay rights issues, not just marriage for a while, is that younger people are almost always more liberal than their older peers. And that's true across subgroup. Young African-Americans more liberal than old African-Americans, young evangelicals more liberal than old evangelicals, everything. That was one of the calculations during this period when they were trying to when gay marriage folks were thinking about going on the offense and they could set the terms of when to try to qualify for a ballot, there were real calculations. Just like, not just is a presidential electorate better for us than a, mid, than a midterm or off year electorate, but like, is our margin of victory going to die <laughs> or margin of defeat going to die in the next electoral cycle? And basically, every time somebody turned 18, there was like an 80% chance that you were creating a new pro gay marriage voter. Yeah, and every, I mean, time every, somebody... every day, a gay marriage opponent died and was yeah. replaced by a gay marriage supporter who had just registered to vote. Exactly. And and so and so I think obviously all that was happening in 08 and 12. And the other big thing that was happening, the resource imbalance up to 2008 had favored gay marriage opponents for a variety of reasons. For a while, this was by no means a priority within the, the gay rights movement. They expected to lose these ballot measures and donors were not a big national organization. The human rights campaign wasn't going to throw a million dollars to try to cut the margin in Missouri in 2004. In almost every one of these 35 fights uh, through up to 2010, Prop 8 being the, uh, the notable exception, gay marriage supporters had been at a, at a disadvantage. And one thing that happened starting in 2008 is that there's a sort of campaign of boycotts and shaming. I wrote a little bit about this in an op-ed that ran in the New York Times this weekend. Gradually, you see by 2012, has succeeded in scaring away a lot of major conservative donors just away from this issue altogether. And that's individual donors like the, the Prince DeVos family, Betsy DeVos's family in, based in Michigan. You could see a bunch of six-figure gifts in 2004 and 2008 to state-level ballot measures. There's an effort to boycott uh, like the Orlando Magic. I didn't realize somebody in Betsy DeVos's family owns the Orlando Magic, but like, you know, by 2012, Betsy DeVos, who still is continuing to spend on all sorts of right-wing politics, right? It's not like she's out of politics, but this issue in, in particular is no go. You know, there's a 2009 ballot measure in um, Maine. The Portland Archdiocese spends some major six figures in 2009. It comes up again in 2012. The Archdiocese is out of the game. And 
I think that some of that was boycotts and, and sort of online shaming campaigns as a very effective tactic that really sort of reset the balance of power. There's a political scientist named Andrew Flores who's tried to quantify the effectiveness of the messaging changes in 2012 by the pro-gay marriage campaigns. And one of the things that makes it, he uses this as a sort of basis for measurement, but one of the things that comes through in his research, he, he just wants to know whether the messages were effective. The thing you see is just a huge imbalance in spending. And in every one of the, there are four states that have it on the ballot and every one of the, the big media markets, Seattle, Minneapolis, they're operating at a two to one, three to one volume advantage over the other side. And I think that's just a big part of the political story as well. Well, one relationship that I enjoyed reading about, and I, you know, I don't think you contend that this is, incredibly important to the overall story, but maybe symbolic of some of the different schools of thought within the gay rights movement. And that's the relationship between uh, Barney Frank, openly gay member of Congress from Massachusetts, and then Elizabeth Birch, who was heading the human rights campaign for several years in the 90s. Why did you find that worthwhile to spend some time on that relationship in the book? They sort of personify these two different schools of thought about how the gay political apparatus should use the very little bit of power that it, it had accumulated by the mid-90s when marriage emerges on the scene. Just to go back to the 80s, there were some gay packs, politicians, Mike Dukakis did not want to attend a fundraiser that was held in his honor. Like there's money that was going to Democrats or endorsements. Democrats were not usually through the 80s, like willing to be associated with gay causes outside of some big cities. It's a big deal when Bill Clinton does a, a gay lesbian, I guess at the time, fundraiser in West Hollywood, California. When he says the word gay during his convention speech, the famous line he says is, you know, he says to a gay audience, I have a vision for America and you're part of it. That seen as a huge breakthrough for gay activists who had been, even when they had alliances, were treated as sort of unwelcome outsiders. Clinton has a, a gay liaison in the in the White House office, political office, kind of relationship building that's taken place. And on Capitol Hill, Democrats before the 94 midterms are increasingly prepared to vote for uh, an Employment Non-Discrimination Act, you know, which had been the law in a couple of states up until that, a handful of states up until that point, but it had never been codified in federal law. There had been bills introduced since the early 70s. You know, and then what happens going into the 96 campaign is that gay groups and through the HRC are sort of part of the, the coordinated table. They're being treated the same way that labor unions and environmental groups and women's groups are being like, you're, you're a basic part of the Democratic coalition. There's a question about what you do with that when you need to exert pressure on Democrats. And there's this sort of ongoing debate between Barney Frank and Elizabeth Birch that plays out somewhat in public and also in private over basically how to how to navigate this new Washington. And Birch's idea, she comes from you know, she, she did not come from politics. She'd been the basically chief litigator at, at Apple Computer, pioneering company and awarding gay rights to its employees. She comes in to the HRC is very focused on its public image, on building relationships with corporate America, which have clearly paid off now a couple of decades later. And some of that is that she wants to do outreach to Republicans. There's a big controversy in 94, I believe, where she gives money to a couple of Republican House members who are like generally friendly on HRC money, who are generally friendly on gay issues. I think gives money to the NRCC. If we can get in the door with Republicans, we should do what we can to have relationships with Republicans. 
And Barney Frank, at that point, the most prominent gay political figure in the United States, an incredibly sophisticated lawmaker on all sorts of issues not having to do with gay rights, thinks this is incredibly naive, that the only path to gay political victories in Washington is unified Democratic support of Congress and the White House, and that anything you do to help or give cover to Republicans is ultimately might make you feel good in the moment, but is not the path to actual policy success. And that a strong Democratic Party is the only route for the LGBT movement to, to get what it wants. And this is sort of, the, this, this conversation is brewing at, when DOMA comes up in 1996. The challenge then is how do you fight back against a bill that almost certainly is going to become law? Are you willing to make enemies over? And then we see that sort of play out within the Clinton White House as, as Clinton and his team attempt to, to determine how to navigate this bill that is is, is moving on Capitol Hill. Uh, the chapter, the section in the book about uh, DOMA in the uh, 1996, both on the legal side and the political side, is worth the, the price of admission just for that, that component. It's, it's really compelling. Did, did the fact that there, over time, 90s, 2000s, did the fact that there were gay operatives within the Republican Party at high levels, you had influential Republicans, had gay or lesbian family members, did that have any real impact on the trajectory of this issue, as far as you can tell? You know, like one example where it did was Rob Portman. We're now jumping ahead to 2013. This is March, two weeks before Supreme Court's going to hear arguments in, in the first two cases that come before the, the Supreme Court. Portman, one Monday morning, has an op-ed in the Columbus Dispatch, just gives an interview to Dana Bash for CNN, in which he says that he now supports same-sex marriage. In this case, it was because his son, while college age, had, had come out to him. Portman spoke and wrote really, I think, effectively about my son should, should be entitled to all the same joy that my wife and I have, and also tried to aggressively frame it as a conservative value, um, that we think that this is a testament, a tribute to marriage to, to want to be included in it, not an attack on it, which had been often the, the language that had been used by, by folks on the right. The impact that this has is remarkable and that it doesn't move many Republicans. I think Mark Kirk is the only other member of the Senate who in the week that, Republican member of the Senate, who in the week that follows comes around to Portman's view. But within weeks, Almost every Senate Democrat who had previously been opposed to same-sex marriage moves. Claire McCaskill is probably the most prominent uh, among them. I think John Tester was in that bunch. They can be to the right of the rest of their own caucus on an issue. They cannot be to the right of a Republican on an issue that's this visible. That's the moment at which the Democratic Party becomes unified on this as a core tenet of sort of Democrat, modern Democratic Party politics. I mean, it was less than a year earlier when Obama came out in favor, and it was still perfectly viable for a Democratic Senate to be opposed to same-sex marriage and important, you know, almost single-handedly caused that. I think that earlier, certainly if you had taken private surveys of kind of the Republican professional class, you would have found a lot of people whose views were not aligned with what their candidates were doing on this. But I'm not sure it has a huge effect on the campaigns they're running. Obviously, the most prominent example is Ken Melman, who ends up managing Bush's campaign. He's in the closet at the time in 2004, when Bush runs as a defender of traditional marriage. And what you do start to see is as there's an effort to lobby Congress for repeal of the Defense of Marriage Act, which never ever happens. By then, now we're in 2011, 12, 13, 14, that there is a, um, these sort of professional Republicans organized. There's a big amicus brief that goes to the Supreme Court before the Obergefell case, 100, 200. It's some large number of former Republican office holders, campaign professionals, government officials, Jim Comey is on that sort of conscious effort to signal to Anthony Kennedy in particular that, that if he were to rule in favor of a constitutional right for same-sex couples to marry, that it would not be radically out of line with where the party that at least put him on the court is. 
I see your book having a happy ending. Uh, of course, I'm sure you know most of the people who buy it view it that way. So the heroes in my mind of the book are the people, the activists and the people pushing the envelope on this and achieving success. But within the anti-marriage equality side, just as a calculating political question, you know, who do you think was the most effective group or the most effective individual at holding back the tide of the marriage equality movement? So I read about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints early on, and they're the first basically mainland institution of any kind to take this issue seriously. You know, they, they're responding to a court decision in Hawaii in 1993. And starting in 1994, you get these sort of high-level negotiations within the LDS church leadership about what to do. And what comes through in this is how sophisticated the Mormons are about politics. And I think a lot of it is derived from a real historic sense. What comes through is that the Mormons are very attuned to the way that they are perceived by the broader public and how their public image could affect their effectiveness doing politics. They care far more about political outcomes than they do about getting credit for things, which unusual for political actors, even religious denominations. I think it's very different than how the Catholic Church operates when they're trying to influence something at a state house or nationally, like both have been in their way persecuted minorities in the US. But I think there's a sense of, of Catholics that you, you you know, if you put out the archbishop to announce church policy, that there's a sense that there's an effective, that that's an effective form of moral suasion on an issue. And the Mormons are like the opposite, which is we're only going to be effective if nobody thinks of this as a Mormon issue. They learned a lot of this through the Equal Rights Amendment fight. The Mormons came in and were one of the groups that helped turn the tide against ERA ratification in the late 70s. And they went into a lot of states. Virginia is the most famous example where they wanted to defeat amendment ratification at the legislature, but in states where they did not have large LDS populations. Obviously, in Western states, you know, where you have 5, 10, 20% of the population is LDS, it's a lot easier to build a political base. And they decided they wanted to spend money and they, they built coalitions with other groups where they supplied money and manpower to run persuasion campaigns around the ERA, where their fingerprints were not on it. And they found that incredibly effective. And some of the people who've been involved in the ER, anti-ERA politics of the Mormon church were later involved in their work on marriage. And, they, and I write about how they set up this front group in Hawaii. They wanted basically, the, the court had ruled in 93 and they wanted the legislature to step in and uh, eventually pass a constitutional amendment that would effectively take, take it out of the hands of the courts. You know, they're willing to spend a lot of money. Pollsters will appreciate this particular part of it. You know, Dick Worthlin, Ronald Reagan's former pollster gets sent on mission to go, my limited understanding of, of Mormon culture before I worked on part of the book was that people get sent to go build a temple somewhere is the type of, or you get you know sent to Polynesia to go do missionary work. I never thought that high level former presidential pollsters would be sent to do survey work in a in a far off land. But um, nevertheless, they're sending, you know, PR executives, they're sending pollsters, they're sending lots of money, they hire lobbyists, they're doing everything you would do in Hawaii if money were no object and you had good people on your side. But they also realize like if this is seen as a Mormon campaign to ban same-sex marriage, it's not going to help us at the legislature. And so they basically create a front group with the archdiocese of Honolulu, which is more willing to be the face of this thing. Thing. It's just fascinating. They, they call it Hawaii's future today. They say that the three issues that they're care, they care about are stopping prostitution, gambling, and same-sex marriage in Hawaii. There is absolutely no effort 
at all underway to legalize prostitution or gambling in Hawaii. They do not want to be seen as a single issue anti-gay group. They do not want to be seen as a single issue Mormon group. So they create this whole like animating principle that is just a deflection so that they can go and start lobbying people against marriage. And Hawaii passes a constitutional amendment overwhelming us, I think it's close to 70% to ban same-sex marriage. The court, everything that had happened, all the legal victories that the sort of gay marriage side had had uh, through the courts in Hawaii for the first part of that decade are washed away by the political process. That stands out to me as as a very impressive and savvy show of how to deal with moving public opinion in a far off place and moving legislature and and understanding the intersection of sort of politics and the law. If you look at the Gallup polling on this issue over the years, it's pretty consistent upward trajectory from the mid 90s. It starts at 27% support for same-sex marriage. And as I understand it, it, that's the first data point there is because to your earlier point, it just wasn't a political issue. It's the same reason there's not Gallup polling on should we send astronauts to Pluto because it's not right. it's not on anybody's radar. So it starts at 27% in the mid 90s, 70%, I think as of last matter of days, it, it was updated with the exception of a period in the late mid late 2000s when at least the Gallup numbers plateaued, maybe even lost support in one period. First of all, do you, do you generally accept that is uh, revealing something about what really went on in the country? And if so, what do you attribute that period where the movement toward acceptance of gay marriage was arrested for a spell? Yeah, that's one place where there seems to be either an arrest or actual backlash or reversion in, in, in support. And it's possible that there's around 95, 96. Gallup only starts polling in 96. There was Pew. Somebody did a 90, Newsweek may have done a non-Gallup poll in 94 that had support uh, in the 30s. That's the absolute first time I, I've seen national polling on this, but obviously methodologically different and the questions are slightly different. So I wouldn't read any particular um, longitudinal, draw any longitudinal connections with it. But I think there's you know reason to suspect that around 96 there may have been a little dip and around 2004 and that's like commensurate with our ideas about backlash that the two things that are happening there are like same-sex marriage emerges as an issue on the heels of this victory in hawaii and then notably in the 2003-4 period Massachusetts legalizes same-sex marriage. And Gavin Newsom and a bunch of lesser municipal officials decide that they're going to unilaterally start marrying couples in clear defiance of the law where they are. That leads to the movement to amend the federal constitution and a run of state constitutions in 2004. But also I think you could infer, I think that history. So, you know, you get that history and you have a bunch of people who write at various points, people who are pro-gay marriage, often gay themselves, law professors, sort of political writers who counsel, stop pushing on this. It is the losses are greater than the gains. And it's going to be counterproductive to other gay rights movements because when we push on this, we only provoke backlash. It's one of the reasons I was sort of conditioned to expect that after Obergefell in 2015, that there'd be far more backlash than we than we ended up seeing then. Is that and the right way to say that? Most people say Obergefell. Do you, is, is it Obergefell? I think it's Obergefell. Within the Obama White House, how big of a deal was it when Biden jumped the gun uh, and announced he was on board with marriage equality before uh, what you lay out as a pretty well-orchestrated uh, effort to get the president there to roll out the president's public stance. How big, of a de- how big of a deal was it when Biden got there first? For the reasons you say, both a really big deal and not that big a deal. So a really big deal in the short term in that the president was pissed about this because they had a plan. Valerie Jarrett was 
whatever's like four rungs higher than pissed on the ladder. You know, I think she really saw it as a betrayal of Obama by his number two. Part of that was that they actually had this very specific plan just weeks later for Obama to do this on his own. And they'd been working on it for the better part of a year in the White House. And I chronicle all this from the sort of the moment in the summer of 2011 when Obama decides, like, I'm ready to to do this. And the calculations are, you know, one, how and where does he actually go out and talk about this change in policy on a, on a very highly scrutinized issue? And how do you do it in a re-election? They know the conclusion is he, he, he should do it before he's up for re-election, but they still want to make the 2012 race about Mitt Romney is a rich dude who wants to steal your notebook factory or whatever. How do you roll this out during the campaign election year where at the same time you control the terms of it and how you talk about it? But so then there's some people it's like, OK, maybe we'll do a race a version of the race speech they did in 2008 when the Reverend Wright stuff was bubbling up. And then it's like, are we giving too much salience to this and are we going to sort of overwhelm the campaign with this? So anyway, the conversations end up with he's going to go on The View when he's in New York on a fundraising trip and there'd been research that suggested these will go better with a female interlocutor than a male one. I guess with the view, you get four ladies to choose from who actually asks you the question. And so there'd been a plan. The sort of messaging was in the pipeline. I sense that you found the time in early June when it's just far enough out from the conventions and the debates that whatever blow up comes out of this will recede by then. And you're back to, to your message about the economy. And so Biden blew that up. And that was at once infuriating on a personal level because there was no good reason that he had to do that. And it seemed like just a matter of undiscipline on his part. On the other hand, in the overall arc of the world, I don't think it changed a whole lot that Obama was forced to somewhat in a little bit of embarrassment and defensiveness go on Robin Roberts one Wednesday afternoon to say this versus saying almost exactly the same thing to, you know, Whoopi Goldberg or whoever four weeks later. Like, I, but, you know, from the like the no drama Obama world, this was a huge deal. And I think that there've been a lot of people who'd been Obama loyalists who had been, a lot of them have grown to like Biden, but have, were skeptical of him and and how good a team player he was. Yeah. And a lot of good stuff in the book. People can read it. There's There was one state that the Obama folks were worried about losing in this. People should go get the book and, and read all of that. Some good detail on where the the polling moves where it didn't move uh, in the in the aftermath. Sasha, do you know anything about the behind the scenes discussions among Supreme Court justices, clerks during the five to four majority Obergefell case? Uh, it's a great question. And it's the one thing that I, as a reporter, felt I had no way to crack. It is rare before a justice's papers are open to the public that we get any real accounting of. You know, we only came to really understand what happened in Roe v. Wade when Blackman's papers were opened up. Thurgood Marshall's papers opened up right after he died, which offered a lens into a bunch of cases um, that that he had had uh, sat through. I didn't go in sourced in the sort of world of clerks. Um, I couldn't really figure out how to how to crack it. And that was a five to four decision. Uh, and since then, two votes. On the five side, two of the five votes have been replaced by Trump appointees, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Anthony Kennedy. Why is there not much concern from marriage equality supporters that somehow that gets rolled back? So I think one thing is that the court, regardless of ideology, justices do prize the court as a source of stability and not an originator of chaos in American life. You know, I think one question is like, how would a case actually get to the court that gets at the central holding of Obergefell? I mean, like a state might have to pass 
a new constitutional amendment and then have that be challenged. It's, it's kind of hard to know how you would go back to implementing a ban when, when it's clearly unconstitutional. Justices value something they call the reliance doctrine. And it's the expectation that citizens and businesses and institutions, but citizens should be able to rely on stability and predictability from the courts, which is one reason that, you know, stare decisis and the value that the courts don't go back and revise precedent every couple of years. Uh, especially on issues where people make decisions in their lives. This comes up in, in, I forget if it was Casey or Webster, but in one of the uh, abortion cases in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, in that case, the argument is like, there are women who had, since Roe v. Wade, made decisions about when they were going to get married, when they were going to take certain jobs, when they were going to have kids, based on the expectation that abortion would be legal and that it would be fundamentally inappropriate for a court to take that away from a woman who had planned out her life with the expectation that abortion would be available to her. A lot of people on the court, including, you know, whether it's Kavanaugh or or Gorsuch or sort of new conservative justices would be wary of when they think about what would have happened if a, if a gay couple decided that they weren't going to get married in 2016 because they wanted to wait until they finished grad school. And so they were going to get married in 2022. And then the Supreme court comes and takes that away from them. That I think that there, that there's something that conservative see about the role of the judiciary that would be disruptive if the court was always messing with social policy in a way that people could not build their lives counting on it. So I think that's like one reason that, that this court would be ambivalent. You know, it's very rare that the court overturns precedents and it's hard to understand how and why this would become what new information could come along that would change this. Clearly, the real heroes of this issue are the activists who toiled in the trenches for years, decades, those who put their names on lawsuits. The heroes are those people, not the politicians. That said, in terms of an elected official, uh, who was an underrecognized figure that showed some real courage at some point during this this whole debate? Yeah, I'm not sure I mentioned him even more than very briefly, but Chuck Robb voted against DOMA. Remember, that's an 85 to 14 vote. Well, I've got the list here. So Chuck Robb votes on the marriage equality side of DOMA. Some of the people who voted on the other side, on the Democrats, Leahy, Mikulski, Bill Bradley, Biden, Paul Wellstone. And you have, as you say, Chuck Robb voting with this on the side of uh, marriage equality. He has a new memoir out and I've read just very little snippets of it. And I think he deals with 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 this in it. I think the don't ask or the, the, the military gays in the military question had alerted Rob to injustice against gays and lesbians in the country and that he brought that with him to the to the debate over over Doma. He took this vote well aware that it would not serve him well in, in Virginia. And let's to say the obvious, remember this is Virginia of 1996, not Virginia of 2021. I believe it's Barbara Boxer came to him as he left the floor after that vote and said something like, you're going to lose your seat over this or you're going to end your career over this. I think she said it approvingly. She had voted against DOMA too, but I think it was a recognition of courage of that. Um, and it does become an issue in against George Allen in, in 2000 uh, in that race. And that was somebody who had you know no evident gain, saw the cost as he did it, clear voted his conscience. And he does lose a narrow re-election race in that race you mentioned to George Allen in the year 2000. I I don't think anybody says that that's the reason why, but it certainly was, you know, something that came up in that race as Allen was trying to portray him as, you know, too far left for the state. Part of the equation that you don't focus on in this book, I mean, not to say you minimize it by any means, but just not a focal point on your book. You you really sink your teeth into the legal side, the political side, is what's happening in the culture, uh, movies, television uh, that create a higher comfort level among many Americans toward gay people, gay relationships, obviously, Will and Grace, the Ellen DeGeneres programs, the two guys in the Sonic commercials, 
you know, among many, many others, but your, your book focuses on the legal and political side. What weight do you give to this cultural leg of the stool? Some certainly, and 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 you're right that that's that's something that gets. I certainly, you know, I think all those things sort of pop up in the narrative, but but I do not give them the same focus I give to the sort of political and legal wrangling. I mean, I think that some part of the cycle of what's happened in public opinion on all LGBT related issues, not just marriage, is people feel comfortable coming out. People realize that they know somebody who's gay or lesbian or bi or trans. Their politics changes and they become more accepting. Other people feel comfortable coming out and you get into a virtuous cycle. Some of the early catalyst of that is clearly pop culture is, I think there are probably a lot of Americans who long before they knew a gay or lesbian person in their own lives, knew Ellen or knew Will and Grace or whatever those characters' names on Modern Family are. You know, and there are other things too, like the New York Times starts running wedding notices for gay couples. Brides Magazine decides that they're going to include gay weddings in 2003, I guess, with the Massachusetts decision. So much of, of this, the early part of this story, is not necessarily a story of people for something versus people who are against something, but people who just can't imagine this new thing and the political or you know structure that comes around something that's sort of beyond our imagination. I mean, it's I, I love the should we go to Pluto comparison because the challenge there, if that were introduced all of a sudden, if there were like, you know, a crossfire segment today on like, should we go to Pluto? Like, where do you start? Like, how do you envision what life would be like if man were on Pluto? Like, I don't know. I can imagine that would be wild, but I also, maybe it wouldn't affect me. But if it does, it would could be really bad. I don't know. And I think so much of, of the resistance was some version of like status quo bias, but also just a broader inability, very reasonable inability to imagine what's on the other side of this huge change in social organization. And pop culture often led the way. And people who had never seen a gay couple, especially a sort of domestic gay couple together, probably were first introduced to it on TV or were introduced to it in Brides Magazine or whatever. It certainly does a lot to condition individual attitudes. Joe Biden did this in that Meet the Press interview. He says it's Will and Grace. He says like, he meant that's the one like specific thing he cites is like will and grace change people's views. And I do think that that might understate the extent to which in the sort of cycle coming out is a tremendous engine of political change. We know that contact theory, as social scientists call it, is important in this, right? The people who know somebody who's gay are more predisposed to be liberal on these issues. As a political tactic, coming out is like unrivaled. If you could, if you could figure out how to deploy this on issues that you cared about in campaigns, you would do it because, wow, you introduce somebody to uh, somebody of this and, and you have a, a, appears to be a significant impact on their attitudes. And campaigns actually tried to mimic, mimic this through their voter contact plans and their advertising but free media was doing that and pop culture was doing that earlier. Well, let's end on this, Sasha. With this book, you've written a couple of really insightful distillations of important trends within American politics and, and certainly uh, this book even broader about American society. Uh, but without mentioning something by Robert Caro or uh, Richard Ben Kramer, uh, what are a couple of other books you'd recommend within the same genre as your work that maybe people would want to look up? Well, I'll say certainly in the same category as this book, two things about that, you know, and these were books that really stuck with me as I was writing this one. And in my more grandiose moments, I, I thought of them as models. Uh, Simple Justice, which Richard Kluger wrote about the Brown v. Board cases, but also the sort of 50, 60 year arc of 
to some degree, the development of black constitutional pellet law as a field with the goal of taking down Jim Crow in courts. Um, and it is just this sweeping story that I think begins in the soil of South Carolina, somewhere around the turn of the century and ends at the Supreme Court in 1955 that shows it was deliberate and there was very little speed to how a handful of lawyers working with social science research and built the building blocks to be able to take down school segregation. Um, that's one. And then another book, which is similar in its scope, but on a different set of issues is uh, David Garrow's Liberty and Sexuality, something, something Roe v. Wade, which is starts in the late 19th century in in uh, uh, Connecticut, where the best <laughs> absolute best detail in the book is that Connecticut's contraceptive ban on contraception was written by P.T. Barnum, the P.T. Barnum, who was briefly a Connecticut state legislature le legislator in the 1870s or 80s, talks about how the the cases to the become Griswold v. Connecticut against Connecticut's uh, contraceptive ban, which which first introduces the idea that there is a, a right to privacy in the Constitution. Um, and then that becomes the foundation for Roe v. Wade seven or eight years years later. Both very long, which gave me some cover for thinking that maybe I wasn't um, putting too many pages in mine. But these sort of sweeping books that that have an endpoint of a supreme a, a monumental Supreme Court decision, but realize the story does not begin with the nine justices or even in the appellate process or a circuit, but that like that the origins of these things are far and that the, the paths are winding and indirect and their stories about the sort of full sweep of America at the time. And, and I love both of them dearly. The book is the engagement, really an authoritative must read to understand one of the most significant shifts in public opinion, significant movements of progress over the last 100 years. Uh, the author, Sasha Eisenberg. Sasha, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Zach. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.